And welcome back or welcome to On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? I've been in the laboratory working on the equations, the concoctions, different ingredients to make sure we have the finest of finest of quality of podcasts that the people want, because that's what we're here to do. Give them what they want. That is true. That is the tagline. That is our mission. That is our goal. So that's what we try to do here at On Coaching. And I'll tell you what, friends, if you're a scholar member, you are in luck. I drove 20 hours through the night from Portland, Oregon to Flagstaff, Arizona, to the house of Mr. Michael Smith and Rachel Snyder. And we are going to sit down and bang out what I'm calling the Mike Smith tapes. So scholars who are already in the clubhouse have asked questions for me to ask Mike on their behalf to dive deep into culture. And then I'm also going to be hanging out at the Lumberjacks first week of cross-country practice, doing a deep dive on what, how, and when, where Mike does what he does to get everyone oriented in the right direction, to set up the foundation that has become a powerhouse of cross-country excellence. Only available to scholars, only. <laughs> if you haven't joined, this now is the time, I'm telling you. <laughs> and and, and for, since this is a podcast, let me describe the scene here. You know, I turn on our podcast recording and all I see is John amongst the trees. It looks like he's out in nature because he has made the journey to Flagstaff and he is going to get the goods. This and is this is for what the people, baby. This is what we, this is what we do in the scholar program is we get the goods. It's that we go deeper you know, than anybody else trying to figure it out. Why? Because we're coaches ourselves. We're trying to figure it out as well. And we're using our connections to kind of understand the sport, whether that's historically or right now, contemporarily in front of us. So I'm looking forward to this as well. John has gone on a mission. So if you want to be a part of that mission, sign up for the scholar. And today, actually tonight, we're being hitting the track to watch Luis Guerrero, number four in the world in the 5,000 meter in Eugene, Oregon, doing his last big track workout before he heads to Brussels and goes and tries to bang out a fat 5K time. And if you're a scholar, you're, you're, you have the deets on what the workout is, and you're going to have the deets on how the workout goes. And let me tell you, whew, we talked about flux training. It's a perfect example of a flux training session. Mike is one of the masters of using it. He calls the on portion the spike, and he always calls the stable or the off portion, the steady portion, the stable interval. So it's a spike, stable, spike, stable. If you're a scholar, you'll be privy to that info, so sign up. All right. So we have teased you. If you haven't, if you, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> like if, you, if you're not on yet, Hold on. Let's let the know. big Mike come over and say hello to the people. So Mike, we're doing this... our intro here, so say hello to the people. Hello, people. Oof. <laughs> Smooth as silk and caramel and dark chocolate. Mike's <laughs> voice gracing us. That's right. There, what's the there it is. The... the topic today, Mike, is what I learned. Things you can only figure out by coaching for over two decades, as Steve and I have. Topics include building buy-in, how to stabilize lifestyles in young athletes, getting comfortable with the asymmetry, asymmetry of progress, and then the decisive factors in developing high performers. Ooh. Ooh. I like it. Mm. We're going to cover lots of topics. We are. We are. All Mixed right. I'll, bag. I'll be, I'll be popping in and out. I know you will. All right. I might have to holler at you to get your input on some of those. All right, yeah. I love it. See, I'm not lying. All right, there it is. There's the there's the proof. proof. Live, live, live on the podcast. We are, as I said, Johnson in the backyard with the uh, with the trees and with Mike stopping in. All right, so you heard it there. You heard what the topic is, what I learned. So 
let's let's start down that rabbit hole, John. Well, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of theory of coaching, right? And then there's the reality of coaching, and you have to have both. Like, you have to be well versed in theory of psychology, physiology, periodization, etc. But as we talk often about in the scholar program in the clubhouse, and shout out to Dave Newport, one of our scholars over in the UK, great UK coach, been in the game for decades on decades. He is a huge advocate of the value of experience that only can be won and earned in the trenches of doing it, failing, trying to reconcile while you failed, and so on and so forth. But young coaches, as Steve and I once were, and many people listening to this podcast, we lack that experience. And so how do we, you know, get oriented or get awareness in that? Well, it's exactly through this quote unquote old timers, like now that Steve and myself are venturing to that, passing down that wisdom and word of um, mouth by word of mouth through stories, through application, through podcasts. Exactly. So let's let's jump into this. And I love how we're now venturing toward old timers. This is when you know we've been doing it for a while. These young bloods out here, they don't respect the game. <laughs> so here's how to not make the same mistakes we did, um, but also, you know, kind of kind of improve upon this. Because what we hope is every generation is better because you know what we did. Um, so here, here you go, young coaches and old alike. We're all about learning. And I think number one that we want to talk about is building buy-in. And to start, I'm going to tell a story way back to my original coaching. Or when I when I first got into college coaching, we'll tell this story. Is I remember, you know, my first college coaching job, my only college coaching job, University of Houston. Okay, I'm coming off of a successful high school coaching stint. And then more importantly, coming from the Nike Oregon project, coaching all these pros, doing all these things, I go in and think, you know what? I've coached all these fast people. I've helped all these people. I'm going to get this buy-in. Like, it's not not going to be that hard. It's you just not walk be in and people start just bowing yeah. down. Oh, it's the Steve Magnus. I know what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> come on, you know? It's it's obvious. And you walk in there and guess what? It's not like that. It's not like that. I mean, I remember again, I was young and, and dumb, obviously, but for the first couple of weeks, I was just kind of treating it like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. Like, let's do these workouts, blah, blah, blah. And um what I quickly realized is that I just kind of expected, you know what? They're gonna do it, they're bought in, like they're gonna get better, all that good stuff. But they don't know who I am. And even if they do know who I am, some did, like, it doesn't matter. Like, what matters is the relationship and the bonds and the trust that I build with them, not my past success or what have you. And I I had to remember back when I was in grad school and taking this class that I've talked about many times, which I, I essentially call how to be an NFL general manager because it was taught by former former general manager charlie casserly and he told me past success only buys you a little bit of time and never as much as you think it does oh wow that's yeah and and his point was he remembers he won the super bowl as a general manager and he thought i've won a super bowl you know i got it next group up next people come in and guess what you have to reestablish it. You have to establish that buy-in, that trust, that I am here to help you get better and I know how to show you the way. And if we don't reestablish that with every new individual or every new group that we have coming in, we're going to lose out. And I think this is one of the things that, again, young coaches, myself included, obviously, when I was there, we make that mistake. We think, you know, I've done it. I've coached these people. You know, they're going to trust me even from season to season. This is why really good high school coaches, what do they do? They're they're brilliant at this. They create traditions and then every year they're reinforcing. They're reinforcing. They're bringing new people in. They're not taking new people for granted and saying, you know what? We've won so many state championships. You just have to trust me. 
they're building those bonds and those foundations over and over again. Yeah, trust is the currency, right? And it's so fragile and everyone measures it differently. And that's the hard part I um, learned through coaching a variety of levels and people is how I measure trust is much different than how, say, a high school woman, college woman, um, post-collegiate male, master's uh, runner, like everyone's just different on how they measure trust. And that's the key thing as a coach, right? With the people you're working with, you have to figure out how that person measures trust. Some people, it just might be consistency in character and delivery of your presence on a day-to-day basis. Some people, it might be having the training program um, build out on on the Excel file or training peaks or, you know, final surge or whatever, six weeks out in advance, right? Um, For some people, it might be uh, really rapid uh, replies via text or email. Everyone's different, right? And that's the hardest thing is to initially figure out how people measure that trust currency. And the hard part about it is it takes, it's like money. It takes a long time to make and it's very rapid in its erosion or expenditure. And so you have to constantly be putting in the bank like 5x, sometimes 10x more than you think in that trust currency um, the account. Otherwise, if you don't, it quickly, quickly, as Steve said, it gets eroded even when you've been working with someone for years, even when you've been had success with that person for years. Because you're going to want to do new things or go in a different direction or propose something different. Um, to elevate not only yourself, but the athlete and or the program by subjecting them to a novel stimulus. And if the trust isn't there, there's going to be hesitation. There's going to be um, confusion. There's going to be suspicion. But if the trust is there, it's just it's an easy yes. And it's, it's so tough to measure, so tough to make. And that's where as a coach, it's important to observe and orient yourself with who you're working with um, and figure out how that person measures trust, and it might not be the same way you do. I am so glad you brought that up because I think that is one of the main mistakes we make as coaches is we reflect on how we think we establish that trust and not how the person sitting across from us does. And I may, again, I'm just going to call this the mistakes that Steve and John made. <laughs> That's nine times uh-huh. out of ten what it's about, right? But, but I remember doing this where I remember, you know, one time sitting down with an athlete and it dawned on me that we were like speaking different languages because they're, they just obviously didn't feel like they had that connection or trust or buy-in and, you know, or that maybe even I cared about them as an athlete. And in my head, I'm sitting here being like, what do you mean? I spent, you know, you have four hours of my Sunday, like trying to figure out how to get you, you know, to perform better and this and working on your schedule and workouts and like going over your races and watching them and see what I can, I can do. And in your head, you know, in my head, I'm like, what do you mean? I don't like care about you as an athlete. Like I'm trying, I'm doing everything I can, but the way they, the what they needed was different from what I was communicating, right? And I think that is it, is that, you know, um, it's no different to a degree than, you know, everybody, especially if you're married, like John and I have heard of the famous, like, love languages idea where you have, you know, people who respond to words of affirmation or gifts or whatever you have, you the different love languages. Often it's the same in in creating trust with other people is that you need to send that message in a number of different ways. And sometimes what I've seen as well is um, with the younger generation, a lot um, is people tend to go either two ways is either you have to be more explicit in reaffirming or on the flip side is they pay a lot of attention to your behaviors. So if you're on your phone during practice, they notice it. Why? Because they're inundated with 
you know, being online and on phones and all that, all that good stuff. And they kind of take it as a sign of like, oh, coach isn't paying attention or what have you. So it really is like, and same during races. If you're engaged with the races, I learned this lesson again very early on is if you're engaged with everybody on the race, meaning you're cheering for the number one runner and your last runner, they pay often some kids pick it up more than not others and they'll realize and they'll ingrain and they'll trust you more where they'll realize, oh, coach really does care. Look at him cheering for, you know, so-and-so who's having a rough day or is our, you know, our lowest ranking runner or what have you. And that's where I think it is, is like you never know exactly how someone is going to kind of grade or develop that trust with you. So you have to have that kind of myriad of tools where you're just kind of throwing it out there and, and, and hoping you develop it. And it starts like, as you said, with a self-inventory about who you are and how you are as a person. Like I'm a very agile thinker, very fluid orientation type person. I can just pivot on a dime and go in a different direction. If something's not um, yielding the fruit or promise, I thought it would, but a lot of other people aren't that way. They have more of a, a fixed or stability mindset where they want predictability. They are more satisfied with the same old, same old, and it working not as well, but kind of, versus trying something new that's going to magnify and um, exponentially grow what they're doing. And so a lot of times, I, early on in my coaching career, got into conflict unnecessarily um, or, you know, just unawares that I was creating this conflict because I would pivot a direction of training or I'd pivot, um, you know, instantly like a drill series or sequence just because again, my agile thinking mindset is about what is the best thing that's necessary right now to get the reaction stimulus or development we want. And it's much more fluid. And a lot of people have trouble with that fluidity. They want this predictability. They, because it comes back down to survival, right? Maslow's hierarchy needs. And if someone doesn't have that um, stabilization in their life in general, then it's going to be really tough for them to buy in and trust someone who in general has a good strategy and orientation about where to get them and help them progress and develop, but who is kind of like, you know, a, a quote unquote mad scientist every day, slightly changing the proportion and concoction. A really, you know, concrete example is exactly this. Like, um, when I was working with Tara Welling, and absorbed her from the Oregon project, you know, as you know, Steve, like Alberto was kind of like very impulsive with his workouts and prescriptions about what to do on a day-to-day -day basis. So like you never really knew in that program what you were doing until maybe the moment you hit the track or even the day you woke up. And it was just always like you were thrown for this loop, right? And one thing she really wanted was predictability, stability, and a concrete direction of training. And so for her, when I started working with her, I laid out a month of training every single block. And it's not like we always hit the workouts and all, as we've talked about many times before, but it gave her like, okay, this is in general the direction we're going. This is in general the days I have to be up and ready for a hard session. This is when I, in general, I have a lift planned. And that kind of grounded her and allowed her that freedom to blossom and develop. You know, thankfully, like I started working with her a little bit um, in the middle of my young coaching career or towards the end of my, you know, uh, adolescent or sophomoric phase, as I call it. But I still messed up because working with her and also all the other women with High Performance West taught me so much I didn't know. And I mean, they put up with a lot of my ineptitude being a, you know, male, independent minded, fluid thinker. And upon reflection years later, I realized how I handle a lot of situations poorly, but unknowingly poorly, because I just didn't have the um, introspection and reflection and situational awareness at the moment to be like, how is my audience receiving from their orientation what I'm putting out? And that's the key thing is you have to make that extra cognitive step. You might think they're perceiving something based off your orientation and your intent, but the reality is, they might, it might be the exact polar opposite 
of what you think versus what's actually happening. You know, I'm reminded of this book that I read on research on parenting. And neither John and I are parents ourselves, but I'm going to quote quote the research on this. And there is this wonderful summary of by some psychologist who said, well, you know, how do you summarize all the research up? And he said, or she said, sorry, essentially, talk less, listen and pay attention more. And the point she was, the psychologist was making is if you look at all the research, it's essentially if you pay attention to how your child is responding and listen to, you know, what they're actually communicating instead of getting on the like dis like I'm the authority, I'm the dictator, you do what I say. You can often pick out like, you know, how do you actually respond in these situations to their needs? And that is a lot different than when you just shut things down by being the person who is always talking or dictating in command. And I think that is very similar in, in our, our coaching world to getting buy-in is if we can listen and observe more, then we actually get to see, okay, how do I take my knowledge and my experience and apply it in this situation? Like you just gave the example there with Tara Welling. It's obviously like, yeah, traditionally I might tinker and change, but this person needs stability. And the only way you need know that is if you listen and you pay attention. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, it's funny. I was, we were at the track yesterday with, you know, Mike's um, various post-collegiates he's working with. It's definitely not a group. It's just people he coaches. <laughs> he's very clear on that. But we were talking and he was talking to one of the athletes and she's a high school coach as well in the area. And he was reminding her, like, when you're working with people, especially that you are helping to develop, you're also trying to help them develop their voice. And that's really where, like, I was reminded when you talked about this uh, research, Steve, is by talking less and listening more, you kind of give them the opportunity to develop their voice. And that's really what we're doing as coaches in the world of distance running is we're helping people to develop their voice in this performance arena, in this competitive arena, in this running arena. But also, too, it comes from that uh, debrief interaction and dialogue is you want to help them develop their voice. And the only way to do that is to give them space by talking less. And then, two, encouraging and applauding and um, essentially highlighting the fact that they spoke up and the fact that they used their voice in the way they did and then creating this affirmation cycle so they can develop a stronger and stronger and stronger voice. Exactly. All right. Well, speaking of developing a stronger voice, I think affirming and, and creating that stability um, plays into our second, second what I learned today. Yes. Stabilizing lifestyle. Stabilizing lifestyles. And maybe, John, if you want to start, what in the world does stabilizing lifestyles mean? Well, I'll throw it back to you. What was the original, before we gave it this fancy title, what was the original concept that you came up with when we were talking offline? <laughs> this is the, the non-PC version. Um, how to, It was something, I forget exactly, but it was something along the lines of uh, how to help kids with crazy parents yeah and and that spurred like again going back to what mike and i were talking about is when we go back to maslow's hierarchy needs right it's it's fundamental like we need to take care of the survival threat first so we have to eliminate all the threats to survival so we can get out of the survival cycle and get into the thrive cycle right and that's really what performance is about thriving um so when we get out of the survive cycle there's certain foundational you know, elements, pillars that need to be just rock solid. And one of them is stability. And when you have, say, quote unquote, crazy parents, that can create a very instable environment for a young person because there's not, there is conditionality to their um, expression of their love and desire to see the athlete 
um, you know, do well, right? So the crazy parent might be so focused on time and you're talking about team unity and place and this and that. So they're getting mixed messages, right? And it's not to say the crazy parent isn't well-intended, so to speak. It's just their uh, point of emphasis is, you know, a little misplaced. And that misplaced point of emphasis can create this cognitive dissonance between your approach as a coach and what you're championing and valuing versus what they're getting at home or or the expectations um, that are set by them by their, um, you know, nurturers and developers, primary ones of parents. So it's you got to understand that situation first, but then also too, as a coach, work really hard to also stabilize a lifestyle an in-practice lifestyle, in-team, a, you know, in-race lifestyle and mindset, as well as help them stabilize a lifestyle away from the track, away from practice. So they're not like going to bed at 4 a.m. and then going to bed at 10 p.m. and then eating, you know, cheeseburgers at 2 a.m. and, you know, drinking caffeine at 6 p.m. And it's like, it creates all these wild fluxes. And when you are in that mode, your body's just trying to survive. There's no way it can thrive. Exactly. And I think there's there's a couple. So if we look at this stability thing, there's a couple um, things that, that contribute, especially if we look at young athletes. Is One is that mention of that family and those relationships is if they are getting mixed signals on what it means to belong, to feel connected, to achieve some sort of status or notoriety or significance in the world. And their parent is saying one thing and then you're saying the other. That can create some very confusion for that kid. So there's a little stability there. And then I think the other stability is even if your relationships, family, whatever is perfect, you bring in stability in uncertainty and instability when you make big transitions like going from high school to college where you have go from a controlled environment where you eat whatever your parents give you and you go to school from x time to x time and you go to one where there's lots more choices and by definition more choices more freedom which it can be great also means more instability if you don't come up with some sort of lifestyle constraints, et cetera. So (laughs) I think our job as coaches is partially, especially if we're working in the college side, but even the high school or afterwards, is how do we create that environment and that lifestyle that is conducive to the athletes' like goals, yeah, the athletes' goals that they have and their their wants and desires in this area. And that 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 is key there because, you know, some people aren't going to live the running lifestyle, but that means that they're probably not, like, those goals don't mean much to them. So for, for me, it's about how do we set athletes or provide the right environment to allow athletes to thrive instead of dealing with the chaos and uncertainty that's often, you know, met with them for modern life. And that's the reality of life is it is chaotic and uncertain, right? And so that's why everyone, you know, you know, man, woman, young and old throughout history has sought stability and certainty through different modalities, right? And the, what we need to do is just look at some of the best practices that create that um, expectation and then delivery of stability as coaches. And oftentimes, you know, like we people talk about culture and this and that. It's this very opaque, cliche, glamorized term, but really it's about organizational climate. And as the, you know, coach or head of that organization or group of people, that's what you're constantly doing from a climate standpoint is you're injecting things that need to restore the balance or stability. So just like climate in general can be sunny, can be rainy, can be wet, can be cold, can be windy, et cetera. The whole idea though is to, you know, for climate is to get plants to grow like photosynthesis 101, right? Uh, Sunlight and water, it's all that's needed, but it's the proportionality at different times that matters. And same deal here with infusing, uh, you know, young people, older people, people who have a 
tasked to perform in a highly chaotic environment that is a race with a lot of unpredictability. It's how do you create anchors and rituals? And that's the key, right? Every good program, as you said, Steve, has those quote unquote traditions, but they're anchors and rituals. And by anchoring either from a, a micro standpoint on day-to-day practice, here's what we do to start practice, here's what we do to finish practice, um, or a macro uh, standpoint of here's what we do to start a season, here's what we do to finish a season, and here's how it goes. They're very simple, right? We Typically in cross-country, you start a season with a camp, and then you end a season with a banquet, right? Those are very stabilizing anchors. Or from a practice standpoint, as I shared for this past high school cross or track season, we started every practice with wickets, right? And we finished every practice with some fresh run or a, a check-in with me before they went off um, outside of practice, right? And that over the course of day after day after day, 50, 60, 70 days, that just creates this harmony and harmonizes the athletes. So again, it also compounds on what we talked about before by building and trust is like, we're starting practice the same way. We're generally ending it the same way. This is predictable. This is, I I can count on it. This is very stable. And then in the middle, that's where you introduce the variability of a workout or the day's objective. And they can buffer and handle it because they know they have these anchors that, uh, give them a solid footing for the beginning and end. And that's really what we have to think about as coaches is how are we giving these young athletes, whether we're working in the collegiate system, the high school system, or even post-collegiates, as well as you know um, older adult athletes, different anchors so things will get done and also get done with the right type of intention and then also reaction. Yeah, exactly. It's creating that stable environment. And there's actually some fascinating psychology behind this is that (laughs) when we feel uncertain and unstable, it it almost puts us in this state of chronic long-term anxiety. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is one of the major problems that we actually face right now in society as a whole. And the way I like to think of it is human beings evolve to function and develop and satisfy these needs in local groups, right? You get your status locally. You um, understand people in a small environment. You get that connection. Uh, you compare yourself to, you know, 50, 100 people or what have you. And instead, we've got an environment that puts us in one where we're essentially a global world. Global world. <laughs> yeah. Right. Global network where we're, you know, we're comparing ourselves to millions or billions of people, literally. Um, And that's impossible to deal with. So what that does is makes us feel uncertain and and unstable. So things like establishing, you know, not only lifestyles, but like a message that you belong and are part of this cross country team. And if you're in this cross country team, like you're one of us. You have security in this. Like, we're going to have your back. If you do something bad, yeah, we're going to, you know, whatever, have to deal with the consequences. But, like, you're in this together with others, like, can create that sense of, it's almost that 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 foundation. Actually, I'm going to go back to one more psychology piece. You know, this goes back, gosh, 60, 70 years in some of the pioneering work of... Um, psychiatrist john bowlby who essentially who essentially established the idea of secure versus insecure attachment right with parents and what he found is that when a parent was like responsive to a kid's needs you know we're talking toddlers here the kid would you know feel comfortable and he'd go explore the environment when mom or dad was there right when there was an insecure attachment the kid was too afraid, too scared to like go anywhere without mom or dad. There's no exploration. There's no playing with anything. It's just, you know, I need, you know, some sort of security and I'm not getting it, you know, from this parent. So I'm essentially get out of exploration mode. I think the same thing applies to us here is we need that security. So it allows us to explore and explore our limits or explore our ability to perform 
in this, you know, on this team or whatever have you. Yeah, and that's where like the autocratic coaching style really does a disservice because it can work in the short term and it is effective in the short term. Do not get me wrong. There are numerous autocratic coaches who have had short-term success, but the autonomous um, coach or the coach that's guiding athletes to autonomous or the independent oriented coach who's trying to have athletes find their own voice and explore their own voice and explore trying different things, you know, being met with challenges and able to uh, frame and buffer those successes and failures in a um, positive light. They tend to have a lot more sustainable long-term successes of development and also relationships. Because a lot of times the autocrat coach gets results, but it's not like, hey, I'm going to invite the autocrat coach to my wedding type deal versus the, uh, you know, independent oriented coach is like, that's someone you got a lot of trust in because they helped you transform at a, you know, during your uh, relationship with them. And so it's, and transform for the better, hopefully, in ways that maybe are tangible, but also ways that are intangible. And that's always the measure, right? You know, will you invite that or will that athlete invite you to a big or make you aware of of a big moment in their life, whether it's wedding, you know, birth of children, what have you. Exactly. And that's that gets us to something that we'll talk about in a little bit, mm-hmm. which is what actually matters yes. in these things. Because, you know, uh, actually, I'm going to put a pin in that and we're going to save that. But so to me, OK, maybe before we move on to the next one, what does it mean to stabilize lifestyle? Provide that security, that sense of belonging. Provide, again, you know, people want an environment where they at least know what is expected and maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, we'll call them rules, but they know how to behave and they know what's expected. Yes. Yes. Very, very values. Yes. Yes. So you've got to have those values established so that again, the other way to think of this is our, our brain likes predictability. It doesn't like to get surprised. So it wants to know how to behave in the environment and what the values are and all that good stuff. So provide that, provide that lifestyle that one of our values is we, you know, we come prepared to practice, which means getting enough sleep for most of the time, right? One of the values is like we fuel ourselves appropriate, which means getting enough food and then hopefully good real food and all that good stuff. So knowing the kind of norm for for what it takes. Yeah, I mean, we are storytelling apes because the ability to just tell stories helps us create that cognitive coping that allows us to manufacture stability in an inherently instable chaotic world. And so all these different stories that are told, whether they're various religion stories, whether they're various athletic stories, whether they're various sociological stories, nationalism stories, they're all narratives and they have power to shape, change, and um, empower people as well as, you know, also can be manipulated for ill, but we have to come back to the narrative and the narrative comes, like we said just now, um, based off the values, behavioral expectations, basically a behavioral map of people like us do things like this in these situations. And that's only, you know, as again, talking with Mike, like he understands with the young athlete, they have to go out and explore you know, the party scene, that socialization thing, like going out and using, you know, alcohol as a social lubricant. So, but eventually you want to like give enough space so they don't overdo it and not be a, a command and control coach and be like, hey, were you out drinking last night? You want to show them like, there's really nothing there. Like you have something more valuable here going through, you know, the trials and tribulations of a track and track season, cross country season, a long run, a really hard workout, or just the grind day in and day out, that there's more there to create sustainable, long-term, mutually beneficial relationships than, hey, did you hit the club last night and how how hard did you dance? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's that. That's very true. Like, that's what you're trying to get at is, is, um, is, you know, what is valuable. And again, we think that constricting and controlling is how we get to that, but it's not. And it is. Sometimes you have to let people experience it so that they understand 
oh, well, you know, for some people, they might think this is valuable, but the reality is it's not. So how do we create, you know, an environment that really reinforces it? Mm -hmm. All right. So let's do this. Let's go to our third. Getting comfortable with asymmetrical progress. John, what, what in the world do we mean by asymmetrical progress? Unfortunately, friends, progress is not linear. It zigs and it zags. And that zig and zag is tough. It's tough to, to deal with. Because when you're in a, a zig, which is like kind of maybe a plateau or a step back or, you know, what looks like a roundabout uh, detour, it makes it really hard to understand like just around the corner somewhere else might be a zag where it's a what I call a uh, phase change or uh, leap that happens, right? But I've seen it so many times. And again, talking with Mike about this last couple of days, him too, like you, we were talking about like Abdi Nur and Luis Guevara, who both got like, you know, fourth and 11th respectively at the world championships in the 5k. I remember coming up to flag and visiting and these, you know, freshmen couldn't find their way out of a parking lot. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, one of the best stories about Abdi is like, he goes down to like the Sun Devil invite classic tune-up, right? And he's just a little like freshman, redshirt freshman. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go eat a Subway sandwich, foot-long tuna melt an hour before my race because I'm hungry right now. And then it just has, you know runs like, I don't know, 14, 50, 15 flat, something ridiculously slow for even the level he was at that time. And Mike's just like, oh, what happened? He goes, coach, my stomach just the whole time. Like, oh, you know, go, why? What happened? I hit his foot long an hour before the race. He goes, oh, you probably don't want to do that. <laughs> but, and so, and then Long story short, I mean, Abdiner broke Henry Rono's like indoor 5K record for NCAs, right? I mean, just smashed NCAs indoors, had a, you know, smashed, made a world team, like amazing. But even that, you know, micro term, right? Abdi was so sure after getting third at the NCAA championships in the 10K that he was going to make the world team. And he just had this confidence. Oh, coach, don't worry about it. I'll make that world team. You know, we'll get it done at at Worlds. Mike's just like, you just got third at the NCAAs. Like, you got beat by college kids, and now you're going to go up against, like, pros and make a team? And shit, he did. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I love this because I think what happens is if you have the wrong idea of progress and you think it's linear A to B to C to D to E, you know, all that stuff, what happens is any sort of setback is seen as a threat. Where it's like, oh, I'm off the progress like line. This must mean like I'm going the opposite direction. It's either up or down, and now I'm going down. So something must be wrong. But if you have that kind of zoomed out perspective of progress being asymmetrical and nonlinear, you realize that every performance isn't defining who you are. It doesn't define you whether you're on this, this ladder up or this line up or not. Sometimes those setbacks are just like part of it. And I'll never remember, I think, you know, back when I was working with Sarah Hall, one of the key things that, you know, was a breakthrough for her and I think really set her down a a positive path that she still continued to this day is she went over to, uh, I think it was Ethiopia to train and she came back and I was asking her what she learned and she said, you know what, um, after some race, she was like talking with an athlete who absolutely bombed, you know, ran so slow and they'd gone out with the leaders and then blew up. And, and in Sarah's head, she's thinking like, okay, like, you know, you ran slow, whatever it is, you know, whatever's going through her head. And this athlete was running with Sarah and she's like, you know, at Sarah's asking about the race and the athlete goes, next time I will set world record. And, and, you know, I remember Sarah, Sarah telling me, like, it was kind of confusing at first, but then the next race she, she, that athlete went to, like, no, she didn't set a world record, but she, her performance was through the roof. Like she ran amazing compared to what they did last time. 
And, you know, Sarah and I had that discussion and she was like, it's the ability to trust that you are fit and then put something behind you that may not have gone well because that doesn't define how your how your fitness is. And in America, unfortunately, we we put a lot of stock into it. We say, oh, I didn't run well. This must mean I'm out of shape now and we're done for and it's disaster and I don't know how to get back on track. And the reality is like the best athletes, just like the example you gave there is they say, you know what? I got third at NCAAs. That's fine. I still believe I have the ability to make this world team. Hmm. Yeah, it's the linear mindset is very fragile because it is a fragile mindset because it is a shallow mindset that's based off of the most recent information compared to the most distance information. So what I mean by that is when you think linearly, you have to be at the same or incrementally a little bit better every single day, every step of the way. People aren't like that. We fluctuate. We have pulses. You know, we, we ebb and we flow. There's ups and downs, right? Two steps back, you know, and then boom, catapult you five steps forward. And it's hard to predict, right? Equations, the um, arithmetic of running with mileage and, you know, workouts and how we frame it is very much in the West, a linear exercise. And they're like, if you don't run today you and take a day off, your aerobic enzymes will, you know, automatically evaporate and, oh my gosh, you're going to gain weight and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but what you talked about, it, 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 it holds true. Like when I was coaching uh, this Ethiopian uh, athlete uh, several years ago, he was the same deal. He would go out, you know, just, you know, smashing it and blow up. And I'd be like, oh, Dariba, how was that? He goes, he goes, eh, it is, it's not so good. But, you know, next time, first position. Next time, first position. First position I will get. And I was just like, okay. And then next time he did. <laughs> I mean, he paced like Kinesi Bekele to at the time, like one of the number two 10Ks all time, right? He just, he's like, you know, in the, the rap, the, the, you know, he's pacing Mo and Galen at the time when they were in an organ project. You know, and the guy was fit. The guy could do things. And it was just like he had the mindset that no matter what, like that one kind of like blip on the radar wasn't defining who he was. But he had this assertiveness and confidence that this is this is part of the progress. This is part of these steps forward. This is part of getting better. Because if I'm not out there and going on a race and making it a race and really seeing what I have now I don't know where the limits are. I don't know, you know, where I need to work on. But a lot of times we manufacture stability or manufacture status in the West because they're like, oh, look at that person. They just keep getting a little bit better every race, every race. And we realize, we forget that a race isn't just a status um, seeking uh, device. A race is really a, an exploratory device where we're trying to explore where our limits are, explore where we are relationally to other competitors, explore how can I make things, you know, chaotic and unpredictable for other competitors so that I can, you know, um, put myself in a better position to win that one race. Like I was talking with Luis uh, yesterday and he was talking about how his mind shifted about not seeing like, um, uh, like, uh, you know, the world record holder in the 5k as the world record holder in the 5k every day. He's not always this 1235 guy, right? It's like, sometimes he's just a normal guy like anyone else at a really high level, but normal in that stratosphere of the elite world and not just like crazy Bonko's next level, because it's like, yeah, if he was that he'd be running 1215 and then people consistently and then people are like oh this guy's insane so it's understanding and recalibrating that just because someone ran one time once you know days ago weeks ago months ago years ago doesn't mean they're always capable of running that time when they show up to a starting line and that's you know one of the things Luis started to really understand was i got to spot the line and because i have a spot on the line i got a shot because you can't get to that starting line without already having the credentials to be in that zip code, no matter what starting line it is, an invite at the high school level, a regional meet in cross country or track at the NSA level, a championship meet, a global, you know, 
qualification meet. If you have to qualify to get there in some way, shape, or form, that means you have just as good a shot as almost anyone else on that line. Exactly. I think that's spot on. So let's let's go to our fourth of our what I learned. All right. The decisive factors in developing high performance. Whoo! This could be its own podcast, so, Steve. Yeah, that's good. So I don't know how we're going to get through this in this time, but here's what I'm going to start is. I said earlier I, I'm going to put a pin in it, and I think this is important because decisive factors in developing high performers, one of them is understanding what actually matters for us as coaches and them. And you said it earlier, which is like the moments afterwards, the, do you get invited to the wedding? Are you part of this person's like, you know, life? Did you help them, you know, set them up over the long haul? And I think this is one of the decisive factors, because if you take this long haul view of my job, isn't just to get them to run faster um, in circles or around an oval, my job is to help prepare this person for life and to like give them those skills, then that actually gets you out of your own way, gets you out of like obsessing over, you know, this performance stuff only, and instead puts you in a position as a coach where you, you can take that big picture of, you know, what is best for these individuals and these teams and these kids and what is my focus and am I going to lose sight of that and go down a dark rabbit hole or am I going to stick with like the values and the reasons that I, I got into coaching in the first place? Yeah, I'm reading right now a book called, or rereading I should say, a book called uh, Certain to Win, which is the strategy of John Boyd applied to business by Chet Richardson. And John Boyd, we've talked about him before, he uh, was a fighter pilot who came up with the what he's called the OODA loop, which is essentially to make really good decisions in the asymmetrical chaos that is battle. Um, you know, uh, soldiers have to be able to orient quickly or uh, observe, orient, and decide and act in a very quick, successive fashion and have that, you know, the decision and actions be accurate for that moment. And that's where orientation and observation are key. And there is a, you know, quote here that is from Major uh, General F.W. von uh, Milton, who says that the human heart and psychology of the individual fighting man have always been the ruling factors in warfare. And what matters most, the decisive factor really is that troop morale and leadership skills. And you see this time and time again in wars, like say the U.S. versus Vietnam, right? That didn't go well for the U.S., even though we were well, more heavily gunned, more people, you know, more troops, more, 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 more. We're seeing it right now with Russia versus Ukraine, right? It's that leadership skills, like we're seeing from the Ukrainian president and the troop morale that we see in the Ukrainian soldiers, super high and better than Russia, <laughs> right? And they're holding them off and they're holding their own. And so when we think of the decisive factors, we're thinking a lot of what we talked about, right? Building buy-in, stabilizing lifestyles, not getting, you know, getting comfortable with the asymmetry, asymmetry of progress comes to your ability as a coach to keep the morale high and is dependent on your leadership skills. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think often what we do is when we think of um, decisive factors, as coaches, we often get stuck on the workouts, Right. Yeah, it's like as Shang Tzu said in the Art of War: numbers alone confer no advantage, and those numbers alone—that's that's the workouts. That's the- yeah. So it's it's like we get obsessed over those. Don't don't make a mistake. They of course matter, but to me, those aren't the decisive factors in developing high performers. It's more of these soft skills that we talked about, which is like get people motivated, fill their basic needs, like you know, support them, feel like, make them feel like they're secure, give them a purpose and a why or reinforce that purpose in a why. And if you do that, they'll run through brick walls, you know, because it has meaning, they feel secure, they can take risks. And often what we do is we kind of set that back or set ourselves back and sabotage ourselves. You know, how many teams have you either been a part of or like worked with other athletes from who 
it, the coach is performing out of a place of like fear and putting that on the athletes where it's like, if you don't perform, you know, you're going to get punished or it's the end of the world or, or what have you. Um, and all that does is backfire because it creates that place where the athletes are performing out of a place of fear, fear of being punished, fear of, of law, loss, fear of disappointing their coach, whatever it has. And we want you to free, we want to free people up to perform. Yeah, it's, um, you know, again, it comes back to being comfortable with being in the zip code and not having an address. And a lot of people want specific specificity and that exact address, the exact recipe, step-by-step plan that if I just do this, I'll passively get all this benefit. But you have it's an active participation because you constantly have to recalibrate because as the famous line goes, the map is not the territory. And your plan is not going to be the reality of the situation on a day-to-day basis. So your ability to have a really good strategy or overall focus and direction and, you know, some people call it a mission, is much more valuable than having a step-by-step, no variation, no wiggle room. It has to go exactly as planned. Otherwise, this is threat and stress and chaos. And, you know, we get worried about it. But as long as it's good enough, as long as you're in the ballpark, and that's very squishy and soft and hard for some people to cope with, you just have to be okay that it's going to work out in the end to the best it can. But if you just try to command and control every step in the process, you're probably going to retard or mute or blunt the progress and development rather than letting it blossom and flourish. Yeah, exactly. Is it backfires over the long haul because you just, you just, you know, put people in a position where they're performing out of a place of fear. I mean, a lot of this is leadership 101. It's parenting 101. It's, teaching 101 is if you put people on a place where they feel like they can thrive, they will. If you put people on a place where they feel like they're just surviving, it's not going to work out very well. So our goal is how do we create that environment where people can thrive? And the thing that I would say is this changes over time because we have different, you know, uh, athletes who are put under different environmental pressures. So, for example, today's athletes, you know, unlike John and I's generation, for example, they face pressure from social media, from adding up, from, you know, trying to get their status from, you know, having more likes, followers on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter or whatever kids use nowadays it, or YouTube and that's a tougher environment than I think we grew up in. And what that environment allows is it allows for you to almost be judged all the time. For for older coaches, what I would say is it's often like kids nowadays are perpetually and always living in a middle school lunchroom where they're like, you know, you go to you go from elementary school where everything is kind of ordered straight you have one or two teachers you're around the same kids it's a small group you go to middle school and all of a sudden you know you're not assigned to eat with your class you're just given um you have to pick where you're at when you're in middle school you've got to figure out where you belong and what lunch table you can sit at and you know who you are well now, you know, for our generation, John, when we went to middle school, it sucked. But then we figured out those things, who our friends were, where we belonged, what we cared about. Mm-hmm. Now it is literally like these kids and even adults are perpetually always in a middle school classroom. <laughs> so it's it, it's harder to get that sense of of stability and security. So you as the coach have to provide that even more now because the world is just kind of uncertain, chaotic and crazy. Yeah. And this is where, you know, the currency of coaching really goes beyond what your paycheck is or your bonus structure or the number of headlines that you get with, you know, fast, high achieving athletes. I mean, you know, Mike and I were talking about this too the other day. It's just, it's, he cares just as much about that number 39 guy or gal on the roster as he does about you know, the Abdi Nurs and Luis Guerreros of the world, right? It's it's equal. They're all, quote unquote, you know, his children in running in that mindset where it's like you love everyone unconditionally and you have different expectations for them, but you all you love them in different ways, right? You have this unconditional 
enthusiasm and excitement for them in different ways. And that's really what, you know, is so important is understanding what gets you excited as a coach and also what gets that individual and collection of individuals that we call a team excited as well. And if we bring that excitement for why we're doing what we're doing, that currency is far more nurturing, empowering, valuable, and productive than always worrying about the more superficial currency of status, places, times, paychecks, you know, bonuses, etc. Exactly. And that's kind of what it's all about. You know, that's what it all comes down to. So when we talk about decisive factors, it is literally what actually matters versus maybe what society or even our pull towards success tells us matters and really getting clear on those things. And, and it's hard to filter add, out. It's hard. It's, it's very difficult, but that's where it's like your job as a coach is to help bring clarity to people's lives. And the more you can do that, the better off you're going to be. Right. And that on the online world, you know, unfortunately in media is meant to distort and distract to a certain degree from the truth of reality of your small little, you know, uh, encampment or group. Because you see this, and I was talking with Mike, we're, you know, talking about Let's Run. And we're like, man, remember back in the early days of Let's Run when like Canova, Jack Daniels, people be just throwing down posts about explaining hard things and how to apply them. And there was a lot of good, positive help, right, in the message boards. It's not to, you know, knock on Let's Run for a reason, but you look at what flow, the direction FlowTrack went from the early days when they were out actually just videoing, you know, with Ryan Fenton, like, you know, in a handheld video camera, like, okay, Ryan Hall's doing this tempo run. That's pretty dope. We just got to see it. Like, it was very organic and very useful information for the core audience that uh, it was, um, you know, catering to at the time. But in order to scale, sometimes with media, then what happens is they go towards kind of the, um, they go towards capturing eyeballs, as they say. And to capture eyeballs, you have to put something that is distortionally disproportionate out in the world that is very like, whoa, this is a crazy workout, this crazy time, this crazy, crazy. And it's like, that's not life is a bunch of these crazy, crazy moments that are just like, you know, boncos, but that's what gets attention because it's so short-term and impulsive to get the clicks to then play that game. You got to be in it for the long haul, the long game, right? As Steve and I try to preach and, um, you know, apply with everything that we put out in the world is it's much more um, useful to be, give people quality information and much more useful to give them quality inspiration than it is just solely to give them short-term impulsive entertainment. Exactly. It, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a difference here, but it, it matters. So yeah. are you giving entertainment or are you giving quality information and then nurturing people to get them to perform at, at their best? Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you said this, maybe we were talking offline or, uh, maybe in a podcast many episodes ago, but you know, the, how you always have used your Twitter account to convey information is a very useful and effective and, you know, enlightened way to conduct yourself in that social media sphere versus maybe other directions one could use social media, you know, be a more um, distortive or capturing eyeballs for the sake of just, hey, look at me. Exactly. I mean, that's what, and that, that's tough. It's, it's, it's really tough when like you're dependent on selling books or what have you and capturing eyeballs, but you have to, that's kind of what it is. You have to understand the, the, the pull that some of these things have and then be very intentional on what you're trying to use it for. And mm -hmm. I think social media, it's like, well, I want to convey information. The same goes for the rest of our our lives as well as we often get pulled in these dif different directions and we have to come back to well what actually matters what are we actually trying to do yeah and that's where you know the power of clarity is so important in having that focus and direction that simple guiding ethos and mission right you know we come back to this all the time the more clear you are as a coach 
and the better focus and clarity and direction you have in why you're doing what you're doing, you know, getting back to that heart of starting with why mentality from Simon Sinek is then the application of what you do, the actual tactics, X's and O's and actions can then have a deeper impact, a, a better impact and provide more kind of positive nurturing in the cycle of enhancement for everyone involved, yourself as well as the athletes and everyone you interact with. It's so hard to get there because we want to quantify with simple measures something that is very um, non-quantifiable, that's more qualitative and very complex. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's spot on. So, all right. Well, in this episode, we gave you four big what I learned. What we would love to have from you is, you know, especially if you're part of a scholar program, but if you're anybody is shoot us some messages. What have you learned in your coaching career and the lessons that you've taken away and maybe some stories like John and I shared where it was like, oh man, I was an idiot. What was I thinking? What was I doing back then? Because that's the only way we learn is when we look back and understand where we went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do that. Um, you know, debrief, hot wash, that after action analysis, as they say in the military. And we just call it reflection, right? But without that yep. reflection, you can't get better because then you just caught in this endless loop of doing the same old, same old, getting and being impulsive and getting this, you know, a very similar result that might be dressed up a little differently. But at, at the end of the day is actually just, you know, the same result over and over and over again with just a little different accessory attachment to it. So in order to fundamentally change and enhance and improve that reflection strategy is a foundational anchor, I think, in anyone's um, professional practice as well as personal practice in life. Exactly. All right, everybody. Well, thank you again for listening. Share it, review it, all those good things. Join us and sign next up time, for the scholar program. Mike Smith tapes are coming. That's right. <laughs> you don't want to miss Get out. Get on it. <laughs> Get on it.